Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Anne-Marie Slaughter has had an extensive career as an academic and lawyer. She was the first female director of policy planning at the State Department and is now the president of the New America Foundation and a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. She's also a mom. In 2012, she touched a chord with her Atlantic Magazine article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. In it, she voiced her frustration with the reality of work-life-family imbalance. A woman who seemingly had it all had called out basic flaws in the system for working mothers. She wrote, I was increasingly aware that the feminist beliefs on which I had built my entire career were shifting under my feet. Slaughter's views on what's wrong with our work ethic have evolved since her article was published, in large part, she says, due to the conversation it sparked. She argues that our work systems suppress talent in general. She says, that's not just a women's problem, but a work problem, an economic problem, and a moral problem. Slaughter's new book is Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on October 5th, 2015, thanks to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Here, Town Hall's Ware Harmon introduces the talk. To introduce Dr. Slaughter, I want to welcome to the stage uh, Nicole Fizay-Resch. Uh, Ms. Resch is a global program lead at Microsoft and a member of the Washington Women's Foundation, our partner in tonight's program. Please welcome Nicole Fizay-Resch. Hi, my name again is Nicole Fizay-Resch, and I am a member of the Washington Women's Foundation. We're proud to co-present tonight's program with Town Hall, and we're also very pleased to be able to tell you a little bit about the Washington Women's Foundation. We are a group of just over 500 women who pool our resources and collectively grant uh, large impact grants to local nonprofit organizations. And actually, fun fact, in 2003, Town Hall was the recipient of our Arts and Culture Grant, uh, which helped to upgrade the room that you're sitting in right now. So I joined the foundation in 2013 because one day I'd like to run a foundation and I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about how grant making is done. And I wanted to learn by actually doing. Um, and I did get the, the experience of a full grant cycle in my first year with the foundation. But what was interesting is what I learned over and above the grant making. I sat around that table and weighed grant-making decisions as an equal with women who had run corporations, run foundations, had raised their children and sent them off to college, um, had lived for decades outside of the U.S., and a dozen other experiences that I wanted to learn from, and I'm not sure where else I could get that kind of exposure. So access to that diverse community of 500 women is the main reason that I continue to be part of the community. So, if that sounded appealing, we would love to have you join us. We are open uh, to all women for membership, and if you want to know a little bit more about how it works, we have a table out in the lobby, uh, and I welcome you to join us. So, on to tonight's program with Anne-Marie Slaughter. Dr. Slaughter is the president and CEO of New America, which is a think tank and, and civic enterprise with offices in Washington, D.C. and New York. Uh, she's also the Bert G. Kurtzetter University Professor Emerita, of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. From 2009 to 2011, Dr. Slaughter served as Director of Policy Planning for the United States Department of State. 
She was the first woman to serve to hold that position. When she left the State Department, Dr. Slaughter received the Secretary's Distinguished Service Award for her work leading the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review. And prior to her government service, Dr. Slaughter was the Dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and the J. Sinclair Armstrong Professor of International, Foreign, and Comparative Law at Harvard Law School. Dr. Slaughter has written or edited six books, and in 2012, she published the article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All in the Atlantic. That became one of the magazine's, actually the most read article in the magazine's history, and it spawned a renewed national debate on the continued obstacles to genuine full male-female equality. She joins us tonight to discuss her newest book, Unfinished Business. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter. Thank you. What a splendid space. This is gorgeous. So I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about a book uh, that I could not have written three years ago when I published my article. Uh, I published the article. As you heard, uh, it ignited uh, a great deal of debate. I was actually in, uh, in Scotland when it went up online on a Wednesday uh, with my kids and my husband. We were as kind of a busman's holiday where we were giving speeches and seeing something of Scotland in this at the same time. And we flew back on Friday and we landed and I looked at the New York Times and there was an article with me and Sheryl Sandberg and 400,000 people had already downloaded the article. And my mother called up and said, what have you done? <laughs> so the article uh, you know, I occupied a lot of time. That summer of the remainder of the year, I signed a book contract. And I've spent the last three years, uh, first of all, just reading the hundreds of emails that I got, the comments online. Uh, having conversations with audiences like this one where I would give a speech and then we would have a back and forth, constantly thinking and then revising my thinking, and actually looking at my own family differently as well. Uh, one of the things that happened after my article came out was one of my close friends growing up, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia in the 60s and early 70s, one of my close friends wrote and said, you know, your dad was always really progressive. You know, like, my dad didn't raise me to have a career, but your dad always wanted you to have a career. And that, that hadn't occurred to me. I mean, yes, dad had always wanted me to have a career, but I hadn't thought about why for a man in Virginia in the 60s. And so I asked him, and he explained that that was sort of the early or the first wave of what became a major wave of divorces that was partly the women's movement and partly the pill and partly lots of other things. And he represented, as a lawyer, a number of women whose husbands had left them. And they had put their husbands through school and they had raised the kids and then they really were left with no means of supporting themselves. And my father said, at that point, in the 60s, with a daughter, my daughter is always going to be able to support herself. And I tell that story because I would have told you my dad was a lawyer and he was a great father, but I came to see his determination as a father to raise me the way he did, as important uh, as his work as a lawyer. And my mother, who was an artist uh, and a homemaker, 
I came increasingly to see that those two sides of her were actually equal. I've always been proud of the art that her paintings, but I would have quickly told you my mother's an artist. I probably wouldn't have told you so quickly she was a homemaker. And over time, talking to her, talking to them, looking at our family, that sort of started uh, to shift uh, as well. And then, you know, I, went, I wrote about going home from the State Department, and I wrote about uh, our eldest son, who didn't go through anything so extraordinary, for those of you who've been parents of teenagers, but I would say he had a, a, an acute case of teenage-itis. And, you know, I went home, and two years later, he was, um, he was doing fine and is just started uh, at university this year. But because of this article, I spent more and more time on the road. And I occasionally felt like this book should be written by the hypocrite in chief, because there I am, you know, talking to people, writing. Uh, I'm home, but I'm not home uh, a lot. And my husband increasingly became what he had been in Washington, which was the lead parent. He was the, the parent at home. Uh, he has a full-time job, but it's a flexible job as a professor. And he, as both boys went through high school, he was the one who, you know, was there for the homework and there for the kind of getting them to do all the various things they've got to do from music lessons to SATs. I was an actively engaged, but he really was. I had to come to recognize, even when I was home, he was the lead parent. So all of that and a lot of reading and a lot of thinking gave rise to this book. Uh, and I want to start by the, sort of the puzzle that I was confronted with, which is essentially 50 years after the second wave of the women's movement, we have transformed many women's lives and girls' lives. And that's, that movement has been coterminous with my lifetime, uh, and there's no question that I have had extraordinary opportunities that my mother could, did not have. Uh, if she wanted to be a doctor, she was told, you know, why? You're going to get married, there's no point in your going to medical school. Uh, and I was told growing up, if when I went out and played tennis with a boy, don't lose your head and win. You know, competitive females couldn't get husbands. Um, I actually got two. Uh, so. <laughs> So, um, so, but we've had all this change, and now girls are outpacing boys. And believe me, I know this. I'm the mother of two teenage boys, and girls are doing better in high school, better in college. In fact, when, when my elder son and I went and looked at colleges, we were essentially told that his GPA and scores could be lower than if he had been a girl, because the competition is tougher for girls. And their, you know, colleges still want to have a roughly even balance, so a little thumb on the scale for a lot of boys. They're doing better in college. They're doing better in graduate school. There are more of them in graduate school. They're coming out and they're earning equal salaries with men in many professions, and equal numbers. And then as you head toward the prime of people's careers, toward the top-level jobs, there is this great falling off. Right? In a good industry, we have maybe 20% women, maybe. And in many industries, including the technology industries, you're looking more at 5% uh, in the top ranks. Essentially, what's happening is as women have children or are taking care of their own parents or spouse, 
as one. caregiving obligations. You're listening to a, a recent talk by political scientist Anne Marie Slaughter on Speakers Forum KUOW 94.9. Stay tuned uh, for so more after a quick is, break. You know, how do we get past that? We've been Welcome much back stuck to Speakers Forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. We return now to this talk on work-life balance by Anne Marie Slaughter. We'll return We're in a moment with more from this recent talk by Anne Marie Slaughter, author of Unfinished Business. Certainly the way Women, I did. Men, Why work, don't we family. have Stay anything that looks for like for Speakers 50, Forum KUOW 949 Seattle? CEOs, I'm John O'Brien. Women tenured professors, whatever your you're tuned to Speakers is. Forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. But I came we return now to the last part of our broadcast of this recent talk by Anne Marie Slaughter. If you've missed any like part the of the program or want to listen to the talk online, go to kuow.org slash speakersforum. Look at women at the top and you can measure Thanks for listening to this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Because That's it I for this broadcast of Speakers Forum. You can hear a full pod- You can hear a full podcast of this talk by Anne Marie Slaughter on our website, kuow.org slash Anne-Marie Slaughter. Slaughter spoke at Town Hall Seattle on October 5th, 2015. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again. Tune in again so soon for more from Speakers Forum. Good night. In my own thinking was realizing, wait a minute, we, we have to look at the condition of all women, which the women's movement has long tried to do, but the experience of white upper middle class women still dominates how we think about it, and we're not seeing this too few women at the top and too many women at the bottom. So then the... That looking at that, and I'll come back to this, I started thinking about you know, what unified the experience of those women. And they're disparate in many ways, but one of the things that does unify them is that at the top and at the bottom, you're essentially suffering from discrimination against caregiving. If you're at the top and you take time out to be a mother, to be a daughter, to, to care for those you love, that is essentially a black hole on your resume. You are off leadership track. Even if you, you stay in, if you're working part-time, if you're working flexibly, you're no longer on leadership track. And if you take, step out completely, you, you, as I said, you've got this big hole on your resume you have to explain. For women at the bottom, the consequences are far, far worse. But it's the same kind of discrimination or bias. It means that a woman who is... Uh, has a job, is providing for her family, if her child gets sick and she has to stay home with that child, she doesn't have paid leave, she can lose her job. If there's a snow day, probably not so frequently in this part of the world, but in my part of the world, it snows and the schools close and the workplaces don't. And what are you supposed to do? I remember this as an early dean with you know, a full day because the university never closes. And I had two children, five and three. Right, and I frantically called to every undergraduate woman I knew, and one of them had a working mother, and she knew the straits I was in, and she came and, and saved me. So in both cases, women are paying a penalty, yes, because they're women, but more because they're caregivers, because if they didn't have those obligations, they would be able to compete differently. So that, that was a, 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 the way I started to frame the problem. And then I started looking at these various 
half-truths that are holding us back. And I wrote about them in the article. I said, you know, this, it's a half-truth that if you're committed enough to your career, you can make it. That's sometimes true, but it's only part of the story. If you marry the right person, if you sequence your career, truth in all of those, but not, but not fully true. But then think about some of the half-truths with respect to men, because these are holding us back, too. So we say it's a man's job to provide. That's actually in the Bible. It's also in the Quran. It's this idea, it's a man's job to provide. And it is a man's job to provide for his family if he has a family. But it's my job to provide, too. I'm the primary breadwinner in our family, and even if I weren't the primary breadwinner, we would need two incomes. Um, I'm providing just as much as my husband is. And providing, why is providing only cash, right? You can provide in lots of ways. If you are providing for your family, there's cash, and that's great, but it sits on the table and does nothing except for someone's work, turning it into food and shelter and clothing, and more importantly, nurture and discipline and moral instruction and nagging and all the things that go into raising children or, for that matter, taking care of, of elders. The other thing we say is a, children, uh, a child needs her mother or his mother. And I have a, a driver who is, he drives a taxi, takes me back and forth to the train station, and he would often say this to me, you know, and he would mean it as a compliment. You know, he would mean it as, you know, a child needs its mother. A child, there's something special about mother love. I do think a child needs his or her mother. But I think a child equally needs his or her father, and frankly, as many adults in that child's life who can provide stability and love and support. And this, this sort of way we have, so when we say that, what we're saying is, you know, it's the mother's primary job to raise a child, and a child can't be raised properly without a mother, which is, to begin with, very unfair to many single fathers and many men who have very successfully raised their kids. Finally, just one of these half-truths in the workplace, and I, I have a number of other ones in the, in the book. In the workplace, we, use, we say flexibility is the solution. And I, I wrote that in, in 2012, and in my own life as a professor, flexibility was essential. And I said I didn't realize how essential until I went to Washington and worked in a large, large bureaucracy like many other people and worked on other people's schedules. Flexibility is essential, but what we've got now is flexibility stigma, right? So you could, there is flexibility if you're fortunate enough to be in a workplace that has various flexible policies, and more and more do. But as I said before, if you take advantage of those policies, you are stigmatized. You are no longer on leadership track. You are no longer considered a player. And that is true for women, and it's even more true for men. Because if a man does that, if he takes paternity leave, if he works part-time, not only is he not committed to his career in the, the way women are looked at too, but his very masculinity is brought into question. He's not, is he really one of the guys? Uh, and lots of men wrote to me uh, about what that was like, uh, arguing, wait a minute, you know, you're seeing this only through female lenses. This is also true for men. We just don't see it as often because fewer men... Uh, take that role. So let's, let me move forward to, I've laid out problems, to sort of how I now think about the solutions. 
And it comes essentially from, as I said, the things holding us, the, the way I've come to think about it, is we've made a halfway revolution. We have made enormous strides in the way that women, the options open to women, uh, and certainly the way we raise girls. Now, let me just say right here, we are not all the way there by a long shot. I think what Sheryl Sandberg writes about in Lean In and Subconscious Bias is true. I think that women still do have a long way to go in terms of feeling fully confident, and I say openly that my husband taught me to act like a man. Uh, when we would be in seminars together, he would listen to me uh, start an intervention, and I would typically say, well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, but... And Andy would say to me, you just told everybody not to listen to you. You just told everybody you didn't know what you were talking about. Why would they listen to you if you start that way? I believe in all of that, but I still think we have made enormous progress. But there are two things that we left behind. One is we've, we've said women have all these options, but essentially they have the options to be breadwinners. They have options to do the work their fathers did. Men and women, we say, are equal, but the women's work, the traditional work of caregiving, without which human society cannot survive, and frankly, without which we do not invest in the next generation of citizens, that work of caregiving is still way below the traditional men's work of breadwinning. So you can't say men and women are equal, but they, they each had this sphere of work, and those are unequal. That doesn't work. And the second thing is, we have changed women's roles enormously. But as I looked at my sons, I realized if, I were, if they were daughters, I'd be raising them completely differently than my mother was raised. But as sons, I'm not raising them all that differently than my father was raised. And I say, that's me. We're a, you know, a strong feminist. I still realize essentially the messages all boys get are the messages my father's got and my brother's got, which is, your worth as a man is determined by how good a breadwinner you are, how much money you bring home, how high you rise in your career, uh, how good you are in that professional sphere of bringing home an income. And you can't have that halfway either. You cannot change women's roles and not change men's roles. You get a halfway revolution. You get an imbalance that we see as the imbalance in any one working mother's life and we call it the work-life balance? No. The imbalance is in much, much bigger. It's imbalance in the way we value care versus the way we value earning an income. And again, they're two basic human drives, and they're equally necessary for human survival. And we have an imbalance because we've changed the roles of women, but we haven't changed the roles of men. And just to give you a very concrete example, if you look at the Fortune 500 or any gathering of CEOs, of male CEOs, there is not a single male CEO out there who is also a lead parent or a primary caregiver. In fact, the very idea seems preposterous. I mean, how could you be the CEO of a large company and flying around the world and being in all your meetings and be available when your kid's teacher calls or there's a snow day, or my favorite example with my sons is always uh, 6 p.m. the night before uh, suddenly your child says, oh, I have a project due. <laughs> what kind of a project? Oh, well, we need poster board and magic markers and construction paper and, 
you know, uh, how long have you known about this? Oh, two weeks, it, you know, all of that. Music lessons, all of that. No male CEO would ever be able to do what he does and do all of that. So clearly, if we're going to have an equal number of women CEOs, then the men in their lives, or the women, depending on, on who they are, somebody in their lives is going to have to play that role. So that's where we are, that this is a fundamental imbalance. It is unfinished business. And now we have to finish the business of the women's movement. So how do we do it? Well, I could say read the book and open it up to questions, but I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a, a few things. Uh, I mean, essentially, first, I think you, you frame it this way. You understand that this is not a women's problem. This is a work problem, it's a couple's problem, and it is absolutely a national problem. It's a work problem because we've got a workplace that, was, that is locked in the 1950s that still assumes workers have somebody providing care full-time at home. And that's just not true, right? 60% of American women are in the workforce and 70% of American mothers. So we have to look at the workforce and say, look, we need a workforce that makes room for care. We need a workplace that makes room for care. Not that gives special policies for women, but that makes room for care. And again, that care can be your children, or I was born in 1958, which is the height of the baby boom. That means as I age, the baby boom becomes an elder boom. We, you know, you, you may not, ha you can choose not whether or not you have children, but you've got, you can't choose whether or not you have parents. And you can choose to like them, but they're your parents, and you know some large number of us. And I will be of the, on the needing care, but people are have to take care of their parents. Our children will have to, uh, and so we need to think about it as making room for care because now you've got a workplace where you've got breadwinners and caregivers both, just as you have a home where you have breadwinners and caregivers uh, both. It's a couple's problem because couples really have to think about hard how they're going to make room for care. And I have a part of the book that has a conversation that I think all young people should have with one another uh, when they set out. And it's got to be more than, do you support my career? Because everybody says yes. But that is not the question. The question is, one question, I have a lot of them, if I get a promotion, will you move for me? That's when things get tough, right? That's when one of you has a chance to advance, and if we are going to tap the tremendous female talent in this country, there's got to be a lot of those women who get that promotion. Often those promotions require you to move or require you to travel a lot, and then the other person has to be that lead parent. So couples have got to think about this. I actually think that couples should approach these questions the way same-sex couples do. I think same-sex couples are actually in the lead here because if you have two men or two women, when they try to figure out how to divide this up, there's no natural default role, natural in quotes. There's no, I'm the woman, so I'm the natural caregiver, you're the man, so you're the natural breadwinner. It's who makes the most money, that's a big question, who has the best boss, who has the most flexible career, who wants to do what, 
right? In my case, in my husband and I, you know, we both hold down full-time jobs. He would say, and he just wrote an article called Why I Put My Wife's Career First. He'd say, I'm just more ambitious than he is. That does, he's plenty ambitious by many people's standards, but the point is every human being is different, and it shouldn't be a gendered matter. So it's a couple's problem, and then it is an enormous uh, national problem. Uh, we, you know, the, the, as I'll come back to sort of what we have to do, but we really, this is a matter for, in the first place, the next generation, and we now know that the first five years of children's lives, you're not just teaching them stuff, you are shaping their brains, and you're determining what they'll be able to learn for the rest of their lives. In other words, we bake in the achievement gap in those first five years if we don't provide the kind of quality uh, care that we now know children need uh, in those years. And it's also a competitiveness problem because we're losing so much of our talent. Okay, so what do we do? So first of all, we think about it this way as a care problem, as a problem of not making room for care, and as a problem of not opening up uh, roles for men uh, in the same way that we've opened up roles for women. And let me say one more thing on that. I, I wouldn't have believed that if a number of men had not written to me and said, you think I have it all, but I would much rather spend more time with my children. I would much rather be able to balance my work with my, with my family at this phase of my life, but I don't have that choice. I'm supposed to be the breadwinner, and I don't have those options. I think there are many men out there, if we can loosen gender roles for men the way we have for women, we will find many men, not that they don't want to be providers, but that they are very willing to have much more room in their lives for care, and indeed, we know that when men look back at the end of their lives, their top regret is, I didn't lead the life I wanted, but the life society expected of me. And the second topmost regret is, I didn't spend enough time with my family. So I think we, we can loosen this up. So what do we do? We think about it differently. We change how we talk. You notice I don't say stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. That implies that the natural state of being is in the office. And if you're not in the office, you need an adjective, which is weird. Um, I, I talk about lead parents because that's really what I think somebody's doing. They're taking the lead on the parenting side or the caregiving side if you're taking care of your own parents. But somebody, as I said, has to be the flexible, available one. We could talk about working fathers. We constantly talk about working mothers. And A, that again says it's a mother's job to raise a child, to raise the family. And if she's not doing that, we need an adjective that says she's working and doing that. Why don't we talk about working fathers? Why don't we constantly remind ourselves that men have two roles just as women have two roles? And the last one, I have a number of others in the book, but the last one I'll talk about here is let's get rid of the verb help at home. My husband helped. My husband's helping. And let's absolutely get rid of my husband's babysitting. That one is just... <laughs> you don't babysit your own children. Um, but even the helping, because this has gotten a lot of attention. We need men to help more. We need men to step up more. Helping means you made the list, and you are now making sure he's doing everything on the list your way. And that's not going to work either, right? If you're really going to let him be equal, much less be lead parent, 
you've got to let him have an equal say in how things are run at home, just as you expect to have an equal say in the office. This, and I will tell you, this is where things get very difficult for many women. Right? This is tough. And I went through it with my own husband, uh, and I actually heard uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland, the first uh, woman uh, prime minister in Norway, talk, say that this had happened with her and her, her husband. Both of them said, I'll do it, but I'm doing it my way. And that often is a very different way than you would do it. But who are we to say our way is right? When a man says, I know how to do things in the office because I'm a man and because men have always been in the office, I say, uh-uh, that's not good enough. And so why, how is it that we as women are so sure we know the right way to do things at home? You've got to lose, you, you, you just can't have it both ways. So let's get rid of helping. Then let's think about how to plan careers. Most young people will have many different jobs. I've actually changed jobs almost every eight years, even in my generation, and certainly you look at younger uh, uh, people and their you know, four-year jobs, three-year jobs, and all the work on the future of work says they're gonna have lots of different jobs, different companies working for themselves. So why not think about our careers in terms of interval training? Just like you, if you're an athlete and you go, you're, you're getting into peak condition, you go really hard and then you slow down. And then you go really hard again, and you slow down. That's how you actually get into peak condition. Why not think about our careers the same way? Instead of sort of climbing a ladder or, or any kind of sort of direct ascent, let's think about it as, a, you know, there are periods where you really can work very hard to try to get something accomplished. When I, became, when I got tenure, when I became a dean, when I went into government, those were all periods where I had to be absolutely focused on my work. I had to lean in. I had to do all of that. And then there are other periods when you're trying to have children, when your children are young, when your children are teenagers, when your parents uh, are really aging, where it's less important to go hard at work and more important to have time for care. And why shouldn't we think about our careers in those terms, men as well as women? Why shouldn't men and women be able to, say, each work half-time or three-fourths time during those periods, particularly when they have young children or, again, uh, teenagers? And why shouldn't we have phase three, right? When our kids go to college, if we have, have kids or are otherwise out of the house, why then many women, you know, Hillary will be 70 if she wins, and Janet Yellen is 67, and Madeleine Albright, who I gather was here recently, basically had most of her really high-powered career after her kids uh, left. Why don't we think about that whole second surge, uh, at that, that interval uh, post-caregiving? And then in the workplace, there are so many changes. Instead of thinking about it as flexible work, and certainly not flexible work for women, we should be thinking about how to reinvent the workplace. We are reinventing our economy. In, certainly in this town, you are reinventing your economy. Uh, th there is no reason to think about being tethered to an office in the way you had to, where the office was the only place you could get work done. And I, I run an organization. It's not that I think everybody should be at home and work from wherever, although there are organizations that make that work. But I definitely think that what matters is the work that gets done, 
not where someone was sitting and how long they showed their face in the office, as long as the work is done of a high quality on time uh, and the work that I actually need done. And every workplace is probably going to strike a different balance. Uh, there's a place called OpenWork, openwork.org, that is exactly that. It's let's overcome the poverty of imagination about the way we work. Uh, and it has all sorts of different companies that are doing this, and they range from construction companies to telemarketers uh, to sales to every different kind of industry. So I don't think there's going to be sort of one-size-fits-all here, but I do think we should be thinking about it as reinventing the workplace and getting rid of flexibility stigma and coming together and asking how do we work differently and how do we work better. And finally, we do have to do this together. There are things that we can do individually, and I've talked about that. In the end, though, we're not going to finish the business of the women's movement unless, as citizens, at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level, we come together and say, look, we actually have to create a national infrastructure of care. We have to have paid leave. It's completely insane that somebody could lose their job or their livelihood if somebody gets sick or uh, have that, some kind of other uh, catastrophe. We need maternity leave. We're one of three countries or nine countries, depending on which survey you look at, in the whole world that doesn't have paid maternity leave. We're up there with Papua New Guinea and Lesotho and Swaziland. And, um, we have to have paternity as well as maternity leave. A uh, number of European countries are now having use it or lose it paternity leave, meaning if the men don't take it, they just lose it. They can't give it to their wives. In Finland, I talked to a Finnish CEO who said to me that since they've done that, his company starts to look at men who didn't take their paternity leave and worry about their character. Because I think part of that's just like, how stupid are you? Why are you leaving money on the table? <laughs> but I also think he's saying, you know, people have started to think, these are your children. What's the matter with you that you wouldn't take two months to bond with them? And that's the kind of culture change uh, that can really make a difference. So we need maternity and paternity leave. And we need a variety of ways to create enormous incentives for quality childcare, affordable quality childcare that can be on-site, uh, that can be community-based, that there are many different ways to do it. In 1971, a bill passed both houses of Congress on a bipartisan basis for universal, universal childcare, and Richard Nixon vetoed it. We can get back there. We really can. Uh, it's just a question, again, of not being a women's issue but being a citizen's issue. And on paid leave, uh, I think it's going to come from cities. Cincinnati passed it over the weekend. I live in New Jersey. We have paid leave off, off a payroll tax. Uh, there, the Secretary of Labor is now studying about 10 cities around the country on how these different policies are going to happen. I think it'll be cities and then states and then federal. But ultimately, we do have to do some of this together. So let me leave you with this thought. Um, you know, a lot of us moan about trying to fit our families and our work together. But I can tell you that there were plenty of days when I was a professor, and I was lucky enough, I was a dean, but I was lucky enough to live about a mile from where uh, we, our, our house and our work and the kids' schools were all about within a mile. And there would be 
whole weeks where, you know, as a dean, a child's ear infection would just like knock down a set of appointments just like dominoes. I mean, it would, it would all, all fall down. But there were many other days where I would think, I am just the luckiest human being in the world. I have, you know, a family I love and work I love, and it just doesn't get any better. And my proposition is that with these changes, with the idea that this is all of our problem, it's a work problem, it's men and women's problem, it's a national problem, we can actually put in place the changes in our personal lives and in our work lives and nationally that make that wonderful opportunity to have both available to everybody, to rich women and to poor women, to middle-class women, and to women and to men. And that is finishing the business of the women's movement. Thank you. Thank you. The floor is open. So, if we could have everyone queue up that would like to ask questions, please keep your questions concise and in the form of a question, and we'll begin now. Thank you. Hi. Um, you framed this as a work problem, as well as others. And I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit about what you're seeing across the U.S. in terms of uh, what might give you hope. We're here in Seattle. We've got a lot of high-tech companies some that were recently written up in the New York Times for how uh, not progressive and forward-thinking they are in terms of um, valuing caregiving. And I don't think it's just high-tech, though. That's certainly um, an issue here in Seattle. Um, but it's other industries as well that champion themselves as innovative and forward-thinking that, you know, you have to be fully committed to them in every aspect. Yeah. So I'm wondering um, just what your experience has been in, in seeing those kind of companies and other companies uh, and how much they are uh, on the trajectory to value caregiving. Yeah, thanks. So let's, let's start on the high end. And yes, I'm, I'm aware that this does not apply to all tech companies. Uh, but uh, there are, at the, sort of the same time there was that New York Times article, there have been other articles that Netflix and a couple of the other big tech companies are offering now up to a year of leave uh, for women and for men. Uh, and I take that as a positive sign for two reasons. One, it's, a, it's the beginning of culture change, right? So you're, and you're seeing men take it, which is important. But two, there's a very tight market there. And so what they, those companies are recognizing is to attract the talent they want, this is what they have to do, which tells you that this is very important to millennials who have choices, uh, to the people they're trying to, to uh, attract. So I, there, there's positive signs there. Uh, I think more broadly, uh, I'll take law, it's the world that I know best, I was a law professor for 12 years. Big law firms uh, are in trouble uh, in all sorts, of, for all sorts of reasons, and this is not, not the only, but one of them is they hemorrhage female talent, uh, right? It just, they, they train these associates and they get close to partner and then they have this, it, you know, completely stupid business model that assumes quantity matters more than quality, the billable hour, 
which, by the way, we didn't have until the 70s. There's nothing that says lawyers have to work that way. Uh, and the whole business model is coming undone. And so what you're starting to see are you know, virtual law firms, law firms that allow people to work on a project basis, uh, all sorts of ways that are kind of deconstructing the way we've traditionally practiced law. So I find that uh, to be also encouraging. And then, as I said, on uh, the open work, what you're seeing are lots of companies that are really experimenting with their, everything from you know, frequent flyer miles, the equivalent of for every hour you work and giving you different kinds of leave and incentives, to more sort of traditional uh, HR kinds of policies. I'm, I'm hopeful. Because I think, that, again, this is about talent. This is about keeping talent and retaining it. It's very expensive to lose it, and not only because you have to train somebody else, but because you've lost somebody who's really good. I do think, though, that unless you have federal government standards, you know, the, good, the bad companies drive out the good, right? I mean, because the, the companies that are doing the, what I consider to be the right thing can get undercut. So I'm encouraged, but I, this is where I push very hard on national policy or municipal or state at the same time. Yes. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm, I'm uh, wondering about root causes and, and intersectionality and kind of where your, why your argument stops where it does. Um, you spoke about how uh, masculinity tends to be valued on uh, capital, right? Valued on earnings potential. But that seems to me to be more of an indictment of capitalism, of neoliberal, I mean, in a, a gendered indictment, but an indictment of a larger system than it is of a gender binary per se. Hmm. Um, and, and furthermore, it seems to me to focus on uh, the binary per se and the women's movement per se um, throws into question how these solutions interact with other movements most specifically trans rights, um, because trans rights is, uh, I would argue, all about fighting against uh, this simple kind of gender binary. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious why the arguments uh, stop where they do um, and kind of how they interact with these larger questions. Hmm. So it's a good question, although I thought this was big enough. But yeah, they, <laughs> uh, so so uh, two things, on intersectionality, this is a effort to get back to uh, what the early women's movement aspired to. It never lived up to it totally, because it was always more about white middle-class suburban women than it was all women, and certainly women of color were left out. But if you go back to Gloria Steinem's speeches, this is the 60s, this is social revolution, right? And she's talking about this, you know, our revolution for women is part of the civil rights movement, it is part of the anti uh, establishment movement attacking capitalism in various ways, uh, but more essentially saying, look, we want liberty, we want freedom to live as we want, and we want equal rights for everybody. And part of, I draw on that work a little bit, uh, I, I do think that, that, as I said, the, one of the things I like most about the framework of care is that it do, it's far more all-encompassing than the framework of just advancing women. So that was a very deliberately chosen intersectionality. On the question of the binary, so I, I don't disagree with you. I did not talk about the trans movement, but I, it, is, it is 
I talk a lot about, as I said, single-sex couples uh, and the ways in which I think that actually has a better way of looking at people in terms of their personalities and who they are and not their gender. And you could certainly take it farther and just say, look, what, what is going on here is to really free up one gender, you have to free up the other, and then you're going to end up accepting anything in between. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you spent most of your talk talking about you know, your personal choices, the couple choices, and clearly that's the, the first uh, the, the, the place to start, and that's very important. But really the issue, uh, as you said, is what you find when you go to the workplace and you say, well, this is what I decided to do, and your boss is not with it. And your boss tends to be a white man, um, you know, for whom all your arguments, he's, he's not even going to be aware of them. It's not the guy that has read his, your book or is even thinking about that stuff. And how can we get to them? Because they are really, the, the, that's the obstacle that you're, you're facing. Yep. So uh, that's funny. I posted something on LinkedIn this weekend that said how to have the conversation with your boss. Uh, and the boss, I mean, so there are a couple of things that I think you can do even with very resistant bosses. Uh, and the, the, the starting point is that this is not about accommodating your needs as a woman. This is about how you can do a better job. And you can do a better job for this person. That's the way you, you frame it. And I, it's, it's not, um, you know, this is no deception. I believe you'll be able to do a better job if you can work from home one day a week or if you can leave, you know, at 5 and then get back online at 7. Whatever it is that would make a difference, what you say is, I could do a better job if I could do this because it will allow me to you know, take care of what I need to take care of and then I can be completely focused on the job. Or if you're working at home, uh, you know, I'll be able to work on longer term projects, I'll be able to get my writing done, whatever it is. And then you do it on an experimental basis. You say, you know, let's try this for a couple of months. If it doesn't work, I'm perfectly happy to, to uh, reconsider. Uh, that's an approach that has worked. I've, I've got various examples. Uh, and again, it, it again says, look, I want to do the best job I can, and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But the second thing you do is you make common cause with the men in your office who are also, look, 56% of women report uh, that it's hard or very hard to combine work and family. 50% of men do. Right? There are plenty of guys out there that are finding, uh, finding this difficult. And my proposition is, again, you, work, you, you get together with a bunch of your colleagues, not just women, women and men, and you talk about how could we make this office work better for all of us? How could we be more efficient? How could we, you know, in, in some cases, actually, uh, you know, the big corporations are finding that, that letting people work from home cuts down on real estate costs. There, there are lots of ways. But that's... I agree with you that, that I, I've, got, I've experienced it myself and I've seen it where you get that kind of resistance, but I think you can t tackle, tackle it from a different um, perspective that is much harder to turn down if the proposition is I'm getting better work done. Well, it should come from both, right? But, but what, what, I've, what I have seen in my own workplaces and also uh, the research shows um, it's got to come from the top down, but even when, you know, the, the boss is very 
supportive, you still get this middle level of managers who are often very resistant. So yes, it, it does have to come from the top down, and there are all sorts of ways you can build in incentives, but I think it also has to come from the bottom up, speaking the language that person understands, which is not, you need to accommodate my caregiving, it's I can do a better job for you. Yeah. Hi. Um, as a person who's childless by choice, um, you know, I feel that I, I have actually made a lot of sacrifices. And, and I think, you know, I don't speak for anybody else, but I think a lot of women make sacrifices in choosing not to have children. Yes. And I'm, I, in this conversation, um, I often feel kind of left out when everyone's talking about, you know, maternity care and paternity care. And, um, and I, I sort of hear in your talk a little bit um, of a preference toward let's get maternity and paternity care first. Um, no, and, paid family and I, leave is most important, I think. But. Okay. Uh, my, I guess my question is, you know, how do people like me fit into this, um, this spectrum of, you know, being able to have more flexible and reasonable work policies? And um, where does caregiving in general fall on your priority list? So there are a couple different answers to that, and it's a very important question, and I do actually talk about it at some length in the book, because this is, you're not the first person I've had as, uh, say this, and, and it is, it's essential. And I've also have friends who really feel discriminated against in the sense that they're the ones who have to stay late when, when you know, peers who've got kids go home to dinner. Uh, I'd say a couple of things. One, um, Care, as I define it, is very broad. I didn't, in the book, it, it, care is investing in others, but it's also investing in something other than yourself. In other words, the work of an artist, a, a composer, uh, the, a sculptor, people who are invest in creation, that's the same process as investing in another human being. There are other people, if you think about investing in your community, or simply something you're passionate about. So when I think about making room for care, that includes everybody. Because again, you may not have kids, you may have chosen not to have kids, you still undoubtedly have people in your life you love, and at some point you may need to care for them. Or you have things that you're passionate about doing that you want to be able to have time for, and making room for care has to include all of that. At New America, we have six weeks every year of paid time off, which you can use for anything. We do also have maternity and paternity leave because if you're going to have a child, that's different. Uh, but we make sure that the basic deal is open to everybody. Uh, the other thing I would say is I think we have to recognize that if you make that choice, you should be promoted faster, right? In other words, you're, you are making a choice to be completely on tap, I'm assuming, focused on your work. I am not suggesting that we level the playing field and everybody move up together. I'm saying there ought to be, you ought to have the room to say, I'm going to go slower and I'm going to take longer time, but I still want to be considered for a leadership position when I'm ready. Or you want to say, nope, I want to go hard. And I expect that that will be recognized and rewarded in the workplace relative to those who are, are working differently. Dr. Slaughter, thank you for your work, your writing, research, and your model. Um, and one piece that I was struck by, and I have not read your book in entirety, and I will. Um, however, I'm, I do know that you reference Ai Jin Poo, yes. uh, the head of the National Domestic Workers yep. Association. And I'd love just to hear more about how you came to intersect some of your policy um, suggestions or changes that you purport 
with her good research and her good work around caregiving yep. um, across the economic spectrum, especially yep. as it relates to people who do live and work out of impoverished situations. Yep. Absolutely. So I, I discovered um, Ai Jen Poo and her work and, and her book, The Age of Dignity, and it, as I was writing, and we were completely aligned. We had actually both come up with this idea of an infrastructure of care independently, and she calls it the care grid, which I think is a wonderful way of thinking about it. But it was, a, you know, her point is working with uh, caregivers, primarily elder caregivers, but also uh, children, that, you know, these are the people who are um, most intimately involved in making our, those they care for their lives better, and they are, their work is systematically denigrated. And she points out simply that, you know, this is stupid to begin with. I said, you know, for children, we now know just how essential those five years are. We want to be training people, certifying people, paying them, you know, a wage that, that is really worthy of the work uh, that they're doing. The same is true for elder care, right? I mean, there, there, a lot goes into knowing how to care for an older person, much like caring for a child, that doesn't do for them, but allows them to do the best they can do, that allows them to have the best day they can in a way that is sensitive and, and educated. Uh, so her view, and, and I borrow the elder boom from her, that view of sort of where we're going and what it's going to take to support our society essentially says we have to treat caregivers like any other quality workers. And again, education, training, certification, and yes, pay. I, I quote the one, one uh, neuropsychologist at Michigan points out, we pay our caregivers the same amount we pay the people who walk our dogs, mix our drinks, and park our cars, right? There's something wrong there. Um, I must admit, I'm off the generation that when I read your 2012 article, I was very skeptical. Uh, but a few more years in the workforce, working in technology here as a woman, uh, really took off those rose-tinted glasses. So thank you. Oh, dear. You. I, I can't. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't wait to read your book. So my question is, uh, there's research out of countries like, you know, countries in Scandinavia, which have these amazing parental leave policies. Um, but then when you dig deeper into leadership opportunities for women, there's still a really big gap. Mm -hmm. um, so how much of the answer comes from rethinking care? And if we talk about the American context, how much of it is providing care? and how much of it is actually getting organizations to rethink what it means to be a leader and this idea that you really need to be in the office all the time um, to be a good leader, because mm -hmm. I think that's some of the problems we're seeing in Scandinavia. So thank that's you. That's interesting. So, you know, I was very surprised after my article came out that I, I got all these invitations to Nordic countries, and I thought, well, why? You know, the, you guys have got this. We're, we're the ones who need the, need the work. And part of the answer was what you just said, that uh, the, the, in public sector jobs, you get, you're close to getting close to parity. Certainly in Sweden you are. Uh, and in, but in private sector jobs, there's still a big disparity. Sweden has, I think it's 22% women in senior management, and that's roughly where the United States is. But when you get to actual top leaders, CEOs, uh, we're, we're well ahead of them. 
Some of that, I think, again, so this is where Cheryl, and I agree with Cheryl Sandberg, some of that really is still either conscious bias or unconscious bias, or a, a vision of what a leader is, absolutely, that it doesn't look like you or me or, or, or other women, I think, no question. I think in other cases, in some countries, it, it's gone too far. I mean, like, I think in Romania, you get three years off, which really does seem to me a little much. Uh, <laughs> But the point being, of course, what happens is women then just don't get hired in the same numbers because it's too expensive. Uh, and because then what you know, you're going to lose that woman. She's going to be out for too long. You've got to hold her job. That, that has all sorts of unintended consequences. So, some of, so I think it's both. I, do think there's, I definitely think there's still bias. I definitely think the more women we promote and elect, and the number of women we elect is critical, uh, will make a difference in terms of changing what we think a leader looks like. Uh, and I do think, again, you know, the one thing we do right, although inadvertently, because we don't have leave, women stay in more, uh, particularly in the private sector. And so actually, and the ones who have a lead parent at home or can simply afford it can actually make it. So we're going to find our way, and it's, gonna, it's not going to be the Nordic way, but it's got to be something that gets us to the same attitudes, at least broadly, that you know, when men and women have children, they both have to care for them, and, uh, and there should be time for that. Yeah. Hi, thanks. Um, I think uh, th this question is actually related to exactly what you're talking about. And from my understanding of some of those countries in the EU in particular, and Russia, that some of those policies are geared also towards population growth. So yes. obviously um, our reasoning would be, and your message is, is beautiful in concept. Unfortunately, I, um, I work in uh, policy myself, and um, I uh, am very aware of our national uh, climate when it comes to uh, Congress in particular. And, and where we're at, and so I'm a little discouraged in really believing that we're on the right path for encouraging such policies, at least at that level. And I know some cities have been passing some great policies, but I'm wondering where, how far away are we really at at, yeah. at this moment? We've got, we've got a ways to go. So the first thing I would say, and I, I said this in the piece I wrote in the New York Times, is I'm optimistic because I've seen so much change in my lifetime. You know, and I, I have to, you know, I have to say that. Really, when I was growing up, I had never seen a woman doctor. I'd never seen a woman engineer. I'd seen one woman lawyer, no women professors. The idea of, you know, the, the, we, we have gotten to the point where in 2012, when my younger son and I were watching John Kerry at the Democratic National Convention on TV, my younger son said, who is that? And I said, well, that's John Kerry, and if Obama's reelected, he might be Secretary of State. And my son said, without missing a beat, you mean a man can be Secretary of State? <laughs> and he was serious. He was completely serious. He knew Hillary Clinton, he knew Condi Rice, and it just hadn't dawned on him that a guy could actually do it. So, you know, we've seen huge change there. And we've seen, you know, five years ago, if you'd said same-sex marriage was going to be the law of the land, we'd have said no way. And that was just five years ago. So I, I get... I think we're coming toward a tipping point. And what I would say is we now have 20 women in the Senate. Senator Ayotte, Kelly Ayotte from New Hampshire, who's a Republican, chairs the bipartisan caucus on work and family. That's, 
that's saying something. And that, that group of women have managed to put family leave back on the agenda last year and this year. If we keep electing women, and we do have to, and I talk in the book about what that means and what it does not just for women, but men start to change their behavior once you get a critical mass of women, which is really very, very important. I, th I really do think that suddenly, um, not that we're going to get all of this immediately, but we're going to start regulating the economy to make room for care in the way that 100 years ago, we put down basic eight-hour days, basic workplace safety. We didn't have any of that. And then we, you know, we had the progressive movement, and we did. And I would say, again, it's, it's a big plank for Hillary Clinton. There's no question if she's elected, she's going to go all out. But Marco Rubio just put forth a plan. And I may disagree with the plan, but the fact that Marco Rubio thinks it's important enough to put a plan, you know, I, I, see, I see straws in the wind. But I admit I'm an optimist, but I, I would say I'm an optimist because I have seen enormous amounts of change. I think our political system is broken, so I'm not completely like pie in the sky. I really do think it's broken. But I think even there, we're starting to elect the kind of people who can make a difference. Ma'am, uh, good evening. I, I'm an officer in the United States Navy, uh, and I know in my service, opportunities for women and retention of women are a big topic for yeah. us. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, when I read your article, I thought to myself, yeah, maybe that's right, because at the end of the day, basic operational necessity needs in the Navy military readiness mean that women are just inherently unable to at, and, and summer sex perform at the same level of men because taking nine months off to have a child just puts you behind in the operational cycle. And I know my leadership is talking about changing how we promote and we've increased maternity leave, but I'm just wondering your opinion, opinion on this at the end of the day. Are, are, is there really just a ceiling for us? And am I a bad feminist for thinking that this is the case? <laughs> um. You're not a bad feminist. <laughs> uh, let me start with that. I mean, that was the battle I fought was, you know, like, you can't say this. You'll discourage younger women. And my point was, well, younger, the younger women I know are already looking this in the face, and we have to, we have to address it. Uh, so here's, I don't think there is an inherent limit. I mean, it, in part, it, it does depend on the woman. But it is perfectly possible to have a child and... Marissa Mayer's two weeks is a little sudden, but six weeks for sure. Um, you can go back uh, to physically active duty. It's, again, a question of will your mate do for you what you would do for him, right? So, you know, the woman has the child, but once you've had the child, either man or woman can care for that child just as well. And what I'm seeing are guys in the military who are supporting their military spouse. As the spouse gets deployed, they're the ones who are lead parent. And so I would say I think it's up to individual couples. I don't think it is a ceiling. It is possible that you will say as a mother, I don't want to go, right? I want to be here. And then, you're go then what we have to do is elongate the arc of the career. Because then, and the Navy is very worried about this, because they're putting a ton into you. And so then it's up to them to say, no, it's not up or out. It can be up, lateral, hold, up again, lateral, however. But then, and I do think they're going to do it, because they are terribly worried about losing their investment. Thank you. Good evening. Hi. 
Um, thank you for coming tonight, Dr. Slaughter. Thank you for your service at the State Department. I think your work there was amazing, and I personally hope that you one day return there to continue your amazing, talented work. And part of me feels some regret that you have to spend some time promoting um, workers' rights and women's rights since you're so talented that I would just assume you'd be a, a diplomat or at the State Department for a longer period of time since you're so amazing there. So that all being said, uh, I'm sorry, I just I needed to say that. So. Um, what I'm hearing um, in your work is that is sort of this um, two different things, uh, an argument for workers' rights and then also an argument for gender equality. Mm -hmm. um, so with workers' rights, I'm hearing a lot of like, we need to work less, essentially. And then for gender equality, what I find myself most curious about is actually this idea of um, how masculinity plays into uh, your conversation. So or your argument, so when you were mentioning your husband being the lead parent, you would often, I often hear you preface it with, but he has a full-time job and he's this amazing professor. So it's like, but don't, yeah, he's the lead parent, but don't worry everyone, he makes money and it's, and he's like got his masculine points. <laughs> right, like, right? So, I mean, um, yeah, so I guess what I'm, what I'm sort of wondering is like, um, I read like also Hannah Rosin's like End of Men uh, yeah. book, in which I think one of the things that's happening or that I witness happening for women is that they have to sort of make a compromise for the men that are in their life, where they either don't achieve as much because they're unable to bend their own personal sense of masculinity, but also that um, it's hard to find a man who will um, be making a lot of money, have a great career. You're like, I found a guy who's successful and who will also take a backseat to my career. And I think that's like, I think one of the things that's required for men and women is to sort of bend their idea of masculinity. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Great. Thank you. So I think that's the last question because that's two questions and it's gonna take me a little time to unpack it. But, um, but it's the right note to, to end on. Um, so let me, t let me take the, the first, let me take the first point about the State Department and, and what I'm doing now. Uh, they are actually more connected than I think most people realize in two ways. The, part of the, the heart of the book is an argument about what caregiving does for us. Not what it does for the people we're caring for, but what it does for us. It is investing in other people. That's what caring is. Competition's investing in yourself. Care is investing in others. They overlap in various ways. When you care for others, you learn how to allow someone else to flourish. And actually what Hillary Clinton always said, she sought a world in which all men and women could get, live up to their God-given potential. That was sort of her mantra. I would hear her say that over and over again. And caregiving is really about that. It teaches you honesty, in part because you realize you're a hypocrite as you tell your children to do, not to do things you do all the time, like procrastinate. Uh, it, it, it tells you how hard it is, right? You don't have control and you really have to learn how to do that. It teaches you adaptability, it teaches you courage. So I actually think I'm a far better leader and a far better manager because I'm a mom. I really do. Uh, and I can, I can see it very clearly, um, yes, and I think that's true for men and women. Um, I also think, and this goes, goes to the substance uh, more of foreign policy, because I'm a mom, when I look at Syria, I don't just see a geopolitical chess game. 
I do see a geopolitical chess game. I know how to do that like as well as anybody else. I can see Iran and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and where are we and where is Israel and if we make this move, they'll make that move and I can play Kissinger for you. But I can also look at that and what I see are millions of families and I see mothers and fathers and I imagine what it would be to be there and have my child ripped to shreds by a barrel bomb. And I know, not only do I feel empathy as a human being, but I also know that if we say we're for you and do nothing, they'll hate us forever. What we are doing is breeding another generation of miserable people in refugee camps who hate the United States. So when I look and call for, I take the foreign policy positions I do, they are strongly influenced by the fact that I look at, I look at them through both lenses, and they're the same kinds of lenses I'm talking about here. So let me come to the heart of your point about masculinity. And you're right, um, partly I say that about Andy because I, I want to make clear the trade-off he's made. But he and I have both talked about this a lot, about the difference between being a lead parent who's also breadwinning and being full-time, uh, and that it's harder being full-time. And the, the um, Liam O'Hagan, who's the husband of the woman who is the CEO of Equinox, has written about this in wonderful ways. Uh, and I do think, I think we're going to have to, um, you know, this is going to take steps. This is a very deeply ingrained notion of what a man is supposed to do. And I think it's going to be easier, at least initially, for both men and women to, to work less or be the flexible parent, uh, but also still have work. I would say, actually, from where I stand, I think most people would like to be able to do both in different measures at different points in their life. I mean, Again, my, the women of my mother's generation were hugely frustrated because they were only caregivers, and I, I, I hardly want to switch it so that we, we reverse things. But I do think, so I think it's going to be easier to say, look, men and women can keep working but also make room for care and both do whatever they want to do longer term. But I would also say um, that, and this is where I'll end, I think the men who have the guts to be real feminists, to say, I'm going to support my wife who's got amazing potential and is going to have a big career, and the only way she can have a big career is for me to be on deck at home. A, they're incredibly secure because they're bending gender roles, and that's really hard to do. They're strong, and they are completely committed to an ideal of equality that says, you know, I've got to change my role so you can change yours, and I've, I have the strength of character and the strength of conviction to do it. And I think if we looked at men who did it that way, uh, and we held them up as really the pioneers they are, like the early women who went in and you know, went into workforces, that would get us part of the way there. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Anne-Marie Slaughter spoke at Town Hall Seattle on October 5th, 2015. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum.